thank you for tuning in to State of the Arts, a podcast where art forms are embraced and artists are celebrated. I'm Lee, your hostess of Ceremonies, and this is episode 78, the Asian Heritage Month special. My guest this week is Ralph D. Sawyer. We're taking a historical look at the legendary Swin Tzu and his book, The Art of War. My guest is a former academic and senior fellow at several defense-oriented think tanks. He is a strategic consultant, independent scholar, and lecturer on Chinese military history. He has written several volumes on Chinese warfare, including Ancient Chinese Warfare and the Tao of Spycraft. It translated most of Chinese military writings, including the seven military classics and Sun Tzu's Art of War authored numerous academic and journal papers and undertaken a series of YouTube presentations on Chinese military history. Thank you for joining me. This is such an honor to have you on my podcast. Well, it's an absolute privilege to be able to speak to you and share some thoughts with your sophisticated audience. Oh, thank you so much. And this is such a thrill indeed. So let's get started. Who exactly was Sun Tzu? Well, that's a good question. No one really knows. There's no contemporary evidence for his existence. Uh, he suddenly appears in historical writings two or three centuries after his purported death. So he may be a fiction, he may be a figment, he may be a person with another name, or he may have actually been an actual strategic advisor to King Hulu of the state of Wu, who had just assassinated his uncle and taken the throne and was looking for ways to conquer the realm and dominate the empire. And what was the art of war about? Did Sun Tzu sit down and actually write it? Well, whoever the author was, and we'll be very careful here, the art of war is not just another military manual. Much of the book is, of course, devoted to discussing measures and tactics that can ensure victory on the battlefield. But from the outset, the orientation is radically different. Rather than advocating strategies intended to vanquish, even annihilate your opponents and gain ascendancy over the realm, Swinza framed his discussion in terms of survival. And he outlined an approach intended to preserve not just the state, but also the enemy and its populace. And that's why he said, you know, very famously that warfare is the greatest affair of state. And he further commented that anger can revert to happiness, annoyance can revert to joy, but a vanquished state cannot be revived. The dead cannot be brought back to life. So he actually advocated peace. He was a proponent of avoiding battles and minimizing casualties if battles occurred. Absolutely. I mean, Swinza's approach was to try to win without combat. And that's why he has a famous saying that has entered the you know, common parlance and everybody knows that 100 victories in 100 battles is not the pinnacle of excellence. Winning without combat is the pinnacle of excellence. And many of the sayings have become so popular even nowadays. Quite a few have become what are known in Chinese as the Chengyu or aphorisms, uh, four character, eight character phrases. And 
the whole thing about Swinza's thinking is that it's entered the common culture. It's not just a military book like Tacitus or Onasander, the great Greek writers. I mean, what American, what European knows these people or what they said? But in China, and also even in Korea and Japan, people are very familiar with what, what Swinza said. And in fact, there's a whole cottage industry in writing books about how Swinza's teaching can be applied to virtually every realm. I think in Japan alone, something like 20 or 30 books are published annually. Would you say his texts might have become diluted if they passed through so many hands throughout the centuries? This is a, a difficult question which scholars debate constantly. Um, there supposedly was a 13 chapter version. That's the original version he presumably presented to King Halu when he was seeking a job as a military advisor. There's also supposedly an 82 chapter version, which no one's ever seen. General Cao Cao, the great villain who ended the Han Dynasty. He's the first commentator that we know of to Swinza's Art of War. And he commented on 13 chapters and 13 chapters alone. And over the centuries, that's five or six, year, five or six centuries after the book may have been written, obviously it's been edited and re-edited and we should remember that the book was written on bamboo strips. Each strip can hold maybe 15 or 20 characters. Then these strips are bound together with twine or some other form of, of string. They're constantly falling apart. They're constantly being rearranged. Editors look at that and say, oh, something from the first chapter actually belongs better in the sixth chapter. So they move the strip and then as it's transmitted down, because there aren't many copies. This is not like today, a bestseller is two or three million copies. Swinza's book made 20, 30 copies in the whole realm, possibly. As it's transmitted down, then the new version gains credence. So certainly it's been editing and revising and probably maybe a little updating and reacting to changes, the evolution of warfare. But the fundamental concepts are clearly the core of the book, and they're articulated very early on, and they persist throughout Chinese military thinking. There's actual martial arts teaching, like say from Kung Fu, Karate, Taekwondo, all those Eastern martial arts. There's a lot of that flavor in Art of War, I'm guessing. There are tactics in the art of war, but the interesting thing is that the art of war is more about how you organize and approach warfare, how you conceive of warfare. And it emphasizes a totally rational, informationally based approach, which is why Swinza is kind of the patron saint of all the intelligence agencies. Um, apart from writing the first, uh, the first ep you know, epic on spycraft, which is the last chapter of the art of war. Uh, he stresses throughout that warfare has to be undertaken on a rational basis through doing a process of net assessment. Well, how can you assess the enemy if you don't gather information? Well, you need spies and you need informers and you need anybody you can get, merchants, traveling salesmen, defectors, anywhere you can get information. And it's on this basis that you then approach any situation of conflict with a greater amount of information. You can determine where you're weak in comparison to the enemy, where you're strong in comparison to the enemy, what tactics you can exploit 
exploit expeditiously from the outset, what you have to do to build your strength, how you can manipulate the enemy, what weakness such as a general's arrogance you can exploit. It all comes from information, it comes from knowledge, and that's the basis of Swinz's approach to warfare. He emphasized on knowing one's own strengths and weaknesses and the enemy's strengths and weaknesses as well. And he emphasized uh, terrain too, how important the actual physical environment. Right, Swinza is one of the first people that I know of who ever took a look at the topography and said that at certain types of terrain, we have to understand that certain tactics simply don't work. And you don't throw a large army into a confined valley where a small number of enemy troops up on the side of the mountains can decimate you, which his great, 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 great grandson may be, Swin Bean did uh, about 350 BC at the famous battle of Guiling. Uh, he emphasized the importance of deception as well. Right, Swinza is definitely the father of deception. And for that, he was condemned by the Confucians and, of course, by Western readers when they first read him, saying, you know, deception, the Romans never, never practiced deception. Absolutely not. Well, maybe the case of Scipio is a little different. But anyway, Swinza emphasizes manipulating the enemy. If we look at what his approach is, I would say it's the ruthless practice of efficient warfare. Not the efficient practice of ruthless warfare, because being ruthless has no advantage unless you're Mongolian, and then they terrified everybody into surrendering, otherwise they slaughter everybody. But it's the ruthless, that being always being efficient. How are you gonna be efficient? Well, he says, and this is a quote from Swan's, a very famous quote. The highest realization of warfare is to attack the enemy's plans. Next is to attack their alliances. Next, to attack their army. And the lowest is to attack their fortified cities. In other words, the stupidest thing you can do is engage in urban warfare as is going on in the Ukraine today. Swanza said, attaining 100 victories in 100 battles is not the pinnacle of excellence. Subjugating the enemy's army without fighting is the true pinnacle of excellence. Now, how do you do this? You manipulate the enemy, you deceive the enemy, you create the tactical imbalance of power that allows you to easily prevail. And that's done through deception, through feints, through misinformation, disinformation, and any other technique which can befuddle and mislead your opponent. And this was cutting edge, it was unheard of until he came along. As with many things, Swenza's Art of War is the first book to articulate and codify many concepts. There was before him in the spring and autumn period, which is two centuries of internecine warfare as the fragmented states you know, destroyed each other, annihilated each other. There were a few things like feign retreats or pretending to be weak. So people understood the concrete ways of being deceptive. But Swenza comes and he articulates the general principle. He says, by being deceptive, you can weaken the enemy. You can manipulate the enemy. You may even reach the point where the enemy will succumb without fighting, which is the absolute ideal. But of course, Swenza says, you never go into warfare unless endangered. You don't do it because you want to conquer the realm. You want to be number one in the world. 
You want to be the first, the primo. You only go to war if you're endangered. But if you're endangered, then you have to fight efficiently and be victorious. And that way you preserve yourself and you preserve the enemy. And at that time, because warfare was multi-party, a victory could be just as decimating as a defeat. Your army goes out, you lose half your forces, you win. Meanwhile, you've created a power vacuum. Your good neighbor suddenly becomes your enemy, takes advantage and comes marching in as the state of Yue did uh, when Wu was fighting in state of Chu. So victory comes at a price. Best of all, don't fight. There are no winners in war. Absolutely. Assuming he did exist, because that's debatable. I vacillate between on Monday and Friday. I think he did exist. And on Tuesday and Thursday, I think he didn't exist because we have no contemporary evidence, no inscriptions, no swords, no great cauldrons with his name on it, as we do for the famous kings and other generals of the period, uh, King Gojen and King Fuchai. I mean, it's, their swords are brilliant examples of metallurgical achievement. We have nothing for that. And in the records, well, the books that describe that period, the Zhuan and the Guoyu, the Discourse of the States and uh, Zhou's Commentary, these are really the, the books. And we've also had some tomb texts recovered that characterize the period. Swinza's name, Swinwu's name is never mentioned. So it's not until 400 years after he lived that the great historian Sima Chen, who wrote the first synthetic history, devoted a chapter, a biography to him. And then in his biography of King Halu also said that through using Sun Wu's plans, the state of Wu was, was able to conquer Chu and uh, Kaur Jin, another of the powerful states, uh, into submission. Now, Sima Chen was a very careful historian and he had access to all the imperial archives, which contain many, many um, records that are lost now. And he doesn't question Sun Wu's existence. Uh, so that encourages you to think that, in fact, Swanza did exist. But the lack of evidence in the contemporary writings makes you think he didn't exist. So what you do is you sit down, drink a lot of beer, and debate the thing endlessly. <laughs> there are no artifacts at all? Not, nothing that, that specifically. I mean, we have inscriptions for all, many other people on these great bronze cauldrons on their spearheads, on their swords, so that we know those people existed. But we haven't discovered anything from Swinza. But of course, archeology span has a sort of accidental character. Just because they haven't found it yet doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Perhaps it was one of his tactics. He didn't want his name on anything. Well, there is a tale that after uh, they conquered Chu, he realized that the situation was changing and he left, just as the famous general from Yue, Fan Li, did, uh, that you could participate in the government, you could aid the ruler, but once success is achieved, there's no place for you. And uh, later on in Chinese history, some of the greatest generals, Han Xin and others, were systematically um, executed or exiled by people who had been nobodies but managed to achieve emperorship because they didn't want to be confronted by anyone as powerful or who could overshadow them. So it's, you know, retirement is a wise thing to do. And particularly in China, 
where the emphasis has always been, well, it's twin emphasis, I think. One is um, revering history and the lessons of history and the teachings of history, such as Confucius, who, by the way, lived at the same time as Swinson. Wow. That's the first thing. The second one is to um, avoid entanglements. And you put your knowledge in a book. And in China, victory through wisdom has always been emphasized. And when we look at the Chinese military writings and the Western military writings, we find that most of the techniques, because humans are humans and you know, you've got two arms, two legs, you can only swing an ax so many ways. Most of the techniques are found in both cultures. But in China, there's far more pondering, writing, contemplation, synthesizing, and it's extremely sophisticated. Uh, the concepts develop century after century. They build upon each other because of this reverence for the past. Swinza's teachings are the foundation of Chinese military science, and they persisted in being influential and in providing important concepts, such as the concept of sure, strategic power, uh, chuan, tactical imbalance of power, uh, deception, manipulating the enemy, and others, all the way up until the 21st century. After all these centuries, it's still around and still revered and by so many cultures throughout all this time. It's an intellectual construct. It provides an approach to conflict resolution, somewhat idealized and of course, somewhat limited and constrained by the period in which they lived. Warfare at that time was two-dimensional, whereas now warfare is three-dimensional. Air power, drones, et cetera, et cetera. Are, and informization, digitization have changed the nature of warfare. But humans being humans and human nature being fairly consistent, at least in Swinson's view, um, much of what he said has applicable ability. It's not totally transformable into every realm, but has been seen to have applicable ability in just about every realm, business, romance, the stock market, obviously sports, such as NFL football games, which is a prime example of where Swinza's tactics can be applied, especially deception. Um, and that's why he's had enduring value, as well as because so many of what he, his terms have entered the common language in Chinese. He truly is a legend and he made his mark, he left his legacy. The Art of War has been regarded as one of the five great books of Chinese civilization. And of course, one of the 10 great books of a world civilization. Uh, great in the terms of impact, not necessarily great in the terms of virtue or something. His writings influenced every generation of military strategists in general thereafter. So from approximately the third century onward, third century BC onward, he was being widely read. And this is, this is well attested in the philosophical writings. Generals in the Han Dynasty, especially Han Xin, who was a brilliant strategist, he adopted many of Swinza's techniques, especially the concept of unorthodox warfare. And he helped Liu Bang, who was really a country bumpkin, even though he, thought, he himself thought otherwise, to become the emperor of the Han Dynasty and overthrow the Qing Dynasty, which is the one we associate with those famous tomb figures. Generation after generation, 
That means hundreds of millions of people have been impacted by the strategies and tactics that, and the concepts, the organizational concepts, the approach found in the art of war. Unfortunately, as armies get larger, they become moribund. And the possibility of winning without fighting becomes more and more difficult. So in terms of unorthodox warfare or deception, the number of battles in which these concepts could be applied productively is a few percent, four, five, 6%. And in the West, if we look at deception, for example, deception, deceptive techniques have been applied in a small percentage of battles as well. The difference, of course, as I mentioned, is that the Chinese theorized about deception, whereas in the West, they simply employed deception on an ad hoc basis. You know, there are certain concepts in the art of war, which uh, particularly, you know, merit looking at. One is the strategic configuration of power. That is, strength means nothing. It's how you configure your strength, how you take advantage of the topography, how you deploy your forces. That's what creates strategic power, the tactical imbalance of power. And that's where you can gain a localized advantage. You might be totally outnumbered in the large, but locally you might have a three to one advantage. And so you can constantly win local battles and through attritional warfare or guerrilla warfare, you can eventually prevail. Compel the enemy, not be compelled. Uh, manipulate the enemy, make the enemy run off to, you know, protect something. If you're confronted by an enemy that's larger than you, go attack something that he needs to go save. This technique was used by, by the great, 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 great grandson, Swin Bean, to attack the uh, capital of, of the state of Wei. And that kept this, the army had to revert, give up the uh, siege of a town called Handan, and therefore they became vulnerable. So you destabilize the enemy. You don't fight an enemy that's well ensconced behind a citadel. You move them, you provoke them, you lure them, you entice them. You do all these things. Uh, so the concept of manipulating the enemy uh, is quite different from the Western concept of striking force on force, hitting the center of gravity. Uh, on the assumption that if you destroy the center of gravity, the rest will crumble and you'll gain victory. The Chinese concept is maneuver. Don't waste the lives and your material striking strength. Strike weakness. And if they're not weak, create weakness. Manipulate them so they become tired. Cut off their water supply. Uh, another concept that's related to this unorthodox warfare. And the unorthodox is a remarkable concept. It's the first articulation of the concept in Chinese, in Chinese thought, and it persists throughout history. And unorthodox is always contrasted with orthodox. And it, you know, we always say in the West, orthodox and unorthodox, but in China, it's the opposite. Unorthodox and orthodox, qi zheng. And the unorthodox, what's that? Well, I've had high-ranking military officers tell me that means just do the opposite of what's expected, but not quite. It's not simply a B situation. If uh, two large armies are confronting each other and one's out badly outnumbered by the other, the normal course would be to retreat. That would be orthodox. 
unorthodox in the simplistic concept would then be to attack. When unexpected, maybe in the middle of the night because night battles weren't common. But that's not the only possibility. Unorthodox means being imaginative. We call it out of the box thinking. If you're imaginative, you might uh, say use incendiary arrows and birds carrying incendiary materials, walnuts as it was, to set the enemy's stores on fire, cause panic, and then attack at night. You might send a band of trumpeters around behind. And then once they got in the back, they could blow the trumpets and the enemy would think that a vast force had come to relieve them, to relieve the besieged. And they would be suffering consternation. They would turn around and fight this imaginary force behind them. And then you could attack. You could poison their water supply or cut it off. There are many, many possibilities limited only by the human imagination. So this is the concept of unorthodox. And as Swinzer says, the unorthodox and the orthic are, are, are in a constant tension. They're constantly revolving. And the best example of that was people started using the feigned retreat. And that drew the enemy out of their well-protected formations, caused chaos, allowed you to ambush or attack them. That became so common that it became orthodox. So the unorthodox thing then is to, you feign the retreat, but actually you don't retreat, you attack when the enemy comes forth. So then that becomes common. And again, it changes. So it's like the game. I know that you know that I know that you know. So these are the kind of concepts that the art of war articulates for the first time. The concept of chi, the pneuma, the vital breath of life, which in a military situation would be, you know, combat spirit, but it also means, you know, the physical condition of the men, whether they're well-fed and trust their uh, officers and all that kind of stuff. Before Swinza, there was a case where someone said, you know, chi can be manipulated, don't attack when the enemy's full of spirit. Swinza takes the actual concrete event and he turns it into a general principle. And he says, manipulate, wait for the enemy's chi to abate, then you attack. Well, the next step is you make the enemy's chi abate by making them chase you and these kinds of things, wear them out, debilitate them, enervate them, then you attack. And his great, 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 you know, says, here's all the ways to make that happen. And he has a whole psychology of chi, how you motivate the men, how you train the men, how you harden the men. So it's a kind of continuous thing, but Swinza's art of war is the first to articulate that. Would you, would you predict that it will always be around like, um, well, you know, like the Bible, like Shakespeare's writings, like Socrates and Plato's writings, it's here to stay. I would think as long as human conflict exists, it will certainly be relevant. And having been in this game for more than 50 years, uh, when the Soviet Union dissolved, we expected that this was the end of the Cold War. This was the extent of, you know, the ending of warfare. And yet here we are today with uh, Russia invading uh, the Ukraine. So uh, it, there are many lessons from Swinza's uh, tactical principles that can be applied to this contemporary situation or should have been applied in advance, uh, including Swinza's emphasis 
upon if you can't be victorious over the enemy, you have to make sure your defense is impregnable. And this seems to be what the Ukraine has, to a large extent, achieved so far, uh, which is it's quite remarkable. The, in their particular situation, they don't have the offensive firepower to, to damage the enemy. And that means they have to fight this kind of defensive staying battle um, interminably. Um, what Swinza would say about that is an interesting question. Wow, that's extraordinary. Is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners before we sign off? Well, just that there are many misconceptions about Swinza's Art of War. The book has been so popularized, it's become trivialized but it's full of uh, profound thinking based upon experience, upon studying the experience of combat, the experience of warfare. And while the technology at the time was chariots and so forth, whereas we have tanks and airplanes, uh, human behavior on a battlefield is still remarkably consistent and uh, tactical situations are remarkably consistent. Um, people have applied the thinking from the art of war in terms of contract, conflict resolution to many, many realms, uh, as we mentioned early on, including business, um, personal relationships, and other things. Um, the applicability may be somewhat constrained, but I think no matter what, there is much to be pondered there. Whether it would help you play a better game of golf, I'm somewhat dubious. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can't go over and stomp your opponent's ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't stop on the ball. At least if it's a croquet ball, you can jump them down on it or knock it away or something when no one's looking. Or you, know, you can legally knock it away. I don't think you can jump up and down on it, but yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much. This was such a great honor to have you on my podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, it's good to have an audience which isn't strictly uh, military oriented, which I believe your audience is not. And for people to understand that this isn't just a book about military tactics, but it's a book about survival and approaching conflict and conflict resolution. Yes, absolutely. And it is such an incredible, poetic, beautiful read that's just full of wisdom. I absolutely love that book. Thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of State of the Arts. I encourage all of you to stay safe, stay true to your dreams and be positive. Take care everyone.